tried renting recently in New York? It's absurd. Rents are at an all-time high with single-bedroom apartments going for as high as $4,000. People are spending as much as they ever have on finding a place to live in this city. Welcome to Everything's Not Okay. My name is Shreyas. And my name is Hannah. To figure out what's going on, this week we sat down with Professor Sam Chendon. He's the director of the C.H. Chen Institute for Global Real Estate Finance here at NYU Stern, where we talked about what's going on here in New York and around the world. Um, it's, it's no secret that real estate's been awful for renters this past year across the country in urban areas. New York, we're based out of San Francisco, Dallas. And I wanted to learn more about why that is. What are the drivers that you're seeing in the market? Sure. Well, I'll start by saying that sort of within, this, within the field of real estate, mm -hmm. there are a lot of different things. It's an incredibly varied area. There's everything from construction and development, urban planning, thinking about placemaking, um, we tend to focus uh, largely in, uh, in terms of the kind of classes we offer, the way in, you know, the careers for which we prepare students to really focus on the commercial real estate industry, mm -hmm. income producing properties, sometimes to go work at a real estate investment trust that owns and manages office buildings, shopping malls, hotels, um, generally at an institutional scale. Uh, but we, uh, you know, there's also, you know, prop tech and uh, venture capital. There's all kinds of really exciting things going on in the industry. One that is most visible um, and, you know, uh, for which you know, many of us, whether we're in the real estate industry or not, you know, as part of our everyday experiences, as you describe, you know, the rent that we pay in an apartment building um, and as a renter. And certainly for students living in New York, uh, this is very much a part of our lived experience. Right. What we see, whether it's New York, San Francisco, uh, you know, Boston, other major metropolitan areas around the country, other major urban cores, is that really uh, over the last probably you know, eight, nine, ten years, depending on the specific market that we're looking at, and perhaps with the exception of the first year of the pandemic, rents that have been rising faster than uh, incomes have been growing. Mm -hmm. There's been a fairly consistent erosion of affordability. And uh, that, that's been really challenging because what we also see is that, well, for you know, many of your listeners, you know, they're going to be students in one of our programs and they're thinking about you know, rapidly increasing rents, how tough it can be in New York City to find uh, an apartment. Um, you know, what we see when we look at you know, the resident, you know, the households overall in the United States is that you know, the profile of the renter, whether they're a student or not, is that they're generally a little bit more income constrained. Now, there are lots of renters by choice, people who rent because they don't want to own for some reason. Let's say that, you know, I'm going to be starting a family in a couple of years, and so I don't want to buy an apartment and have to sell it two years from now as my space needs change or my location preference changes. I want to move out of the urban core to a suburban area. Um, you know, your listeners will know what transaction costs are. In big cities like New York, the transaction costs of buying and selling are high. And so... You know, uh, it doesn't always make sense for people to, to buy an apartment in a, an urban core. That being said, when we look overall at the data, what we see is that um, renters tend to be more income constrained than, than homeowners are. Uh, it's just a different you know, economic profile. And so when rents are rising for seven, eight, nine, ten years faster than their incomes are growing, um, we see that introducing, again, a real erosion of affordability, um, which means that people are having to allocate more of their family's income to paying rent, 
and that leaves less for things like clothing, healthcare, education, food, other really important stuff. Um, there was a bit of a lull in the early stages of the pandemic. Some people had this idea that everyone was going to leave the urban core and never come back. Right? We were all going to leave New York City. Right. We were all going to leave Manhattan. Remote yeah. work forever. Yeah, we were going to re work remotely forever. Uh, that you know, whether it was because of remote work or whether it was because of that initial fear around the experience of being in a very densely populated area, that you know, there was something unsafe about that. Part of what's motivating this is also shifting demographics. Uh, millennials aging, starting families, their space needs change, proximity to good quality public schools become more important um, once you have kids. That sometimes means moving to the suburbs. Uh, but this idea that you know we're really going to see a significant exodus from the urban core, and for a period uh, early in the pandemic, rents were declining. Um, and uh, you know, it got a lot easier to find an apartment, and the rent was a lot a lower. A lot easier. It did, yeah. yeah. What we've seen subsequently, you know, is that thesis has proven uh, unsupportable, is that you know, rents have been rising. And I think we've seen over the last year, and certainly anyone who, you know, is a senior or a first or a second year MBA that isn't living in dorms, that is, you know, looking for an apartment in New York City, is that, you know, we've seen significant increases in rents that is consistent with what we've seen in a lot of other markets around the country. The last couple of months suggest, you know, that, you know, it's, it's softened a little bit, but rent levels, you know, are very high. Um, and, you know, that is a real challenge for us for a lot of different reasons. From a economic and social perspective, one of the key issues for us is that, you know, if you are, for example, uh, if you fall into the category that we think of as, or what we describe as workforce, you know, in workforce apartments, you know, these are loosely defined, you know, teachers, firemen, police officers, university professors, people who serve the community. It's become really tough to live in the urban cores of many of our most important cities. Long term though, it impacts the competitiveness of the city if people who serve those communities cannot afford to live in them. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a significant issue for us. What we also see is that as there has been some migration to the Sun Belt, you, know, you get markets like Austin, that you know, a few years ago you know, may have been described uh, fairly accurately as you know, being more affordable to live. Uh, that's no longer the case. You know, there are markets in Florida, in Texas, and other parts of the Sun Belt that have seen rents rising rapidly and where demand for space has significantly outrun supply. Those, you know, some of these markets just simply haven't been prepared mm -hmm. you know, for the number of people that were going to move in because economic opportunity was there, because quality of life was better, taxes were lower, whatever it is. And so again, in a market like Austin, you know, is it affordable? Not in the way that it was a couple of years ago, which comes back to then our thinking about, well, what are some of the solutions then to these affordability challenges? It, challenges in a way that in many markets around the country it would be fair to describe it as an affordability crisis. And so for you, just looking at all these crises and a lot of different contributing factors, what are some policies or what are some ways that you think we can adequately address the shortage yeah. in housing? So I think in the short term, uh, you know, it's always tempting, you know, particularly in a political environment um, and at the local level to be thinking about rent control, rent stabilization. The challenge with that is that, depending on how it's implemented, more often than not, it inhibits new supply. And as all of us know, um, you know prices, whether it be for 
you know, a commodity item or whether it be for real estate in the form of rent, your prices are determined in a supply-demand framework. Uh, when we observe high rents, um, you know, the solution in the longer term is to enhance supply. Um, and so uh, we need to be thinking about policies that really do enhance supply. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enterprises, you know, play an absolutely critical role in facilitating housing outcomes in the United States. Most of us think of Fannie and Freddie uh, in terms of their role in ensuring that we can get 30-year mortgages at low rates. But it's also the case that Fannie and Freddie play critically important roles in ensuring the availability of capital for multifamily investment, apartment buildings, and rental apartments. Um, so whether it be improving the availability of financing for multifamily construction projects, or often the challenges we face or the obstacles to new supply are not about the availability of financing, it's much more local. It's uh, you know, that zoning laws at the local level are really designed to restrict high density housing. Now, there are a lot of communities around this country that simply don't want to see rental apartment buildings. They don't want to see rental apartment buildings that are catering to or targeting income constrained households. And so, you know, for example, when we look at the Biden administration's new sort of you know, housing supply plan, there's not a lot that they can do at the federal level. But um, you know, what you really see described there, I think, accurately captures that you know, zoning at the local level is one of the things that is constraining you know, new high density um, or upzoning of, of, of supply. So we've got to really address that at mm -hmm. the local level. There are a couple of other things that are inhibiting supply uh, that we need to be able to address in sort of a more comprehensive framework. One is the availability of materials. Um, and so construction material costs have been rising fairly rapidly um, over the last cycle. Uh, very, a lot of volatility uh, that we also observe for things like, you know, inputs like lumber. Uh, which become important for small-scale multifamily um, and for uh, for single-family homes, whether they be single-family homes for rent or or for ownership. Um, the other being the availability of skilled construction labor, which really, since the you know the housing boom and bust of the you know 2004 to 2008 2009 period, uh, we saw a lot of people who were skilled construction workers move into other areas of the economy. Not a lot of people going into skilled construction labor. Um, that's a segment of the labor market that's highly constrained. Uh, have to be able to address really a lot of different things to improve the supply outlook. Mm -hmm. One last thing I'll mention at this point, we have a lot of office buildings uh, in uh, New York City and other major urban areas. When we look at the best office buildings, the newest office buildings, the one Vanderbilt, Hudson Yards, you know, the new properties at the World Trade Center site, these are generally performing quite well. Uh, you know, when we think about you know, what are the kinds of amenities that we need to provide to entice people to come back into the office more often. You know, the newest and nicest buildings are most the ones that are most likely to have those kinds of amenities. And so one Vanderbilt, um, an extraordinary property uh, that, uh, you know, I would go into work seven days a week. Right. Um, it's just, it's an amazing space. Um, and it's an exciting, dynamic environment to work in. Yeah, yeah, right. I would just stay there. Yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, what we see is that for older class B and C office buildings, uh, you know, lower ceilings, uh, air circulation that's weaker, smaller windows, less natural light, fewer, you know, sort of you know, common spaces, uh, fewer you know, wide open spaces that are uninterrupted by, you know, by by pillars. Um, uh, you know, the uh, uh, these buildings are less competitive in this mm -hmm. market. 
Um, and you know, all things being equal, we may sort of see a long-term outlook for office demand that you know, where we just need a little bit less office space than we've mm -hmm. needed historically. So, and in some cases, there are people who will argue that we'll need a lot less office space. So these B and C properties that are less competitive, you know, the outlook for them is a little dubious. There is some precedent for what we might do. After 9-11, you know, a lot of businesses moved out of lower Manhattan. Liberty bond financing was used to convert you know, buildings, on, office buildings on J Street, Pearl Street, Wall Street and downtown into uh, rental apartments. Mm -hmm. um, the, while the kind of rental apartments that we need today uh, to be responsive to you know, the needs and preferences of renters look different. The layouts look different. The amenities of the buildings look different. Um, you know, we've already started to see in some markets around the country, including New York, the conversion of older office buildings into uh, multifamily, mm -hmm. into rental apartments. That has, th that can potentially be a win-win uh, because we may have a surplus of these B and C office buildings and you know, we're gonna struggle to figure out what do we do with them. You know, um, the, uh, but we also, what we do know is that in many of these urban cores, we need more rental apartment space. Mm -hmm. And so there might be a nice match here. Um, that being said, because of these issues around zoning, construction costs, the availability of labor, um, you know, the, the fundamental layouts of some of these older buildings versus the preferences of renters today, this is not a cheap thing to do. It is an expensive, time-consuming, um, uh, and difficult process to navigate in converting an older office building into apartments. But that also is you know, potentially part of the solution. There's the pushback against building more affordable housing and low-income housing is that it's going to drive the cost of, you know, someone's house lower. And the growth, the value, the value yeah, of your house. Yeah. And that's a good argument to be made that the increase in value for homeowners has been huge. You're helping to pay off debt and something to retire off of, something to pass off to children. How do you kind of address that dispute between homeowners who benefited from this and renters who are getting burned? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things that we see when we look at sort of suburban housing alternatives. Uh, one is that you know, very often renters are not looking for you know, sort of you know, high density rental apartments in a you know, traditional suburban area, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you know, one of the real opportunities over the course of the next cycle is to build in neighborhoods that we would think of as transit-oriented. So it's not, you know, the urban core, but it's also not sort of, you know, the traditional sort of stereotypical mm -hmm. suburb. Um, it's somewhere in between, and it may be located within walking distance of a uh, public transportation hub, right? You can get onto light rail, mm -hmm. uh, but there's also, there's still a nice mix of, you know, uh, you know, restaurants, there's it's walking distance to a cafe, maybe a daycare that you can drop off your son or daughter on your way to work. Um, so it's, it's a nice medium, you mm -hmm. know, between urban and suburban, um, but access to that public transportation hub the reason you know why we call it a transit-oriented community is absolutely key. Mm -hmm. um, the and we think about green development, you know, or development that is sort of sensitive to and responsive to ways in which we can think about building and developing communities that have a lower carbon footprint, you know, than has been the case historically. Sort of you, know, traditional suburbs, you know, do not have a very great carbon footprint, right. um, and so you know th this is sort of where we see a lot of the opportunity in traditional suburban areas. Um, there we are looking at more often than not uh, because and in part it does reflect sort of you know the resistance on the part of local communities to high density housing in a you know an area that is sort of purpose built to be single family homes mm -hmm. with everyone having a yard um, is single family homes for rent and 
from an institutional perspective, this is a relatively new market that really started with the housing crisis of the early 2000s. But you know, uh, very large institutional private equity players coming into this market, buying up large numbers of single-family homes, and not then reselling them, but making them available for rent. Mm -hmm. So you could live in a suburban community in a single-family home uh, if then sort of the kinds of benefits that you get from that, a yard, a big house, extra space, you know, uh, sort of a, a small park nearby, uh, sort of the, the right public school that you want for your son or daughter, all those benefits without necessarily having to own. Or, you know, conversely, being able to get those benefits even if you don't have the financial means, let's say sort of, you know, the ability to make a down payment mm -hmm. to become a homeowner. So there is some of that. Now, there is some concern on the part of some members of Congress uh, that institutions buying up single-family homes and positioning them for rent is part of what is driving up home prices, right? Because if you buy a bunch of single-family homes, make them available for rent, there are fewer available for sale. Mm -hmm. So the inventory of homes available for sale to own keeps decreasing. Yeah, declines. Um, and again, supply-demand framework, bidding up prices. While that is a concern on the part of some members of Congress, um, as I uh, you brought so, some of the data that I brought to the table in my congressional testimony for month before last, really sort of described how only about two and a half percent of national home sales uh, right now are institutional investors, right? This is a de minimis contributor to housing, single family housing demand in the United States. This is not why home prices are going up or had been going up until you know the point where we saw these significant increases in mortgage rates. Um, so you know, there are a richer and wider set of opportunities for prospective renters in the United States today than has been the case historically. Um, and I think that is a good reflection of the fact that just because we're renters doesn't necessarily mean that we want to live downtown, mm -hmm. right? We want more housing options, uh, but we want to be able to separate whether we own or rent from, you know, uh, where it is that we want to live. So you can think about sort of, you know, in a very simplistic framework, you know, there was a time where if you rented, you were downtown, and if you owned, you were in a house in the suburbs, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't need to be that way. There are some folks for whom living in a more suburban or transit-oriented community is ideal in terms of the kind of environment and setting that they're looking for, uh, but they don't want or can't afford to become homeowners. Let's still give them the opportunity. Um, that's part of, I think, what we see happening today. So not only are you the director of the Center for Real Estate Finance at NYU Stern. The Chen Institute for <laughs> oh, Global right. Real Estate Finance. My and again, bad. No, of course, the global part is very important to include. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you're also accomplished in a lot of different fields, too. I mean, we were speaking about this earlier before the interview, but you mentioned your interest in disease diseases and also kind of leveraging real estate as not just real estate, but as an interdisciplinary field. So could you speak a little bit about that too? Yeah, so I, I, th I thank you for the prompt. I, I mean, I have a deep, <laughs> deep interest in infectious disease epidemiology. Uh, I have to say that you know, sort of as an urbanist, ultimately, I'm looking at um, you know, that overlap in disciplines. And so how is it that we think about infectious diseases in an urban context? Um, and part of my research work now is really focused on two different things that, that capture that overlap. One is the relationship between housing and public health. Um, and I can give you an example of this. The data that we're looking at today shows that during the pandemic, depending on your housing situation, and in particular, something as simple as how close was your home or apartment to a public park? we observe differences in uh, not infectious disease, but in chronic disease outcomes and in overall sort of what we think was public health outcomes. 
A very simple and concrete example. The further away you were from high quality public spaces like a public park during the pandemic, the greater the likelihood that the rate of obesity in your community increased during the pandemic. And you think about sort of why this might be the case. If you, you know, in 2020 lived across the street from Central Park uh, or from uh, Park Slope, uh, sort of the park and park slope, uh, you're far more likely you know, to actually go outside um, and experience you know, the, uh, the, the natural environment um, you know, during the worst days of the pandemic. If you lived in a neighborhood where you didn't have as easy access to those kinds of amenities, where maybe you had to get on the subway you know, to uh, you know, get uh, good quality produce or to get uh, access to, the, uh, to public spaces. Uh, and you were quite naturally and reasonably during those first months afraid to get on the subway. You know, to do something like that. The quality of the food you were eating then, um, the amount of time you spent outside, both of these were negatively impacted. Then what the data shows us that you know, in you know, communities that were characterized by a lack of amenities, you know, and the two big ones for me are public spaces and you know, what we would describe as food deserts, you know, not having access to you know, not necessarily a Whole Foods, uh, but sort of you know, uh, you know, grocery options that included high quality produce at affordable prices. What we saw then is that obesity rates would rise to a greater extent in those neighborhoods. Um, you know, I was across the street from a public park and, and still sort of didn't manage to keep <laughs> you know my, my trim figure from before the pandemic. But the uh, you know, uh, obesity is significantly related to a range of chronic diseases that are significant and of increasing concern in U.S. Uh, populations and in populations in developed countries around the world. Uh, obesity is related to uh, uh, diabetes, the prevalence of diabetes. Uh, it is related to the uh, prevalence of cardiovascular conditions. It's related to the prevalence of, again, this is over the longer term then, it, you know, these things don't manifest immediately, uh, obesity-related cancers. Uh, these are hugely significant issues for us that really highlight that there is a direct connection between the health of our populations and the kind of housing that they can afford. Uh, the other, though, uh, the other field of study that is uh, an area of inquiry for me right now, um, and will be for the foreseeable future, is the way in which cities build resilience to public health shocks, particularly infectious diseases. Um, there are good reasons to believe that over the last, let's say, 15, 20 years, the rate at which novel infections, particularly respiratory infections, have been presenting um, has been uh, increasing. Uh, there are good reasons to believe, and they relate to things like global travel, uh, encroachment of human populations on uh, formerly uh, sort of, you know, uh, wilderness areas, uh, greater contact then between uh, uh, you know, uh, wild animal populations and, and human settlements, um, the uh, uh, increases in the demand for, uh, for meat products in developing countries. There, there are a lot uh, climate change and the way that that's driving migration patterns of uh, you know, vector-borne diseases. Um, all of these things uh, are you know, required that we be thinking carefully about. You know, we don't know uh, about how it is that we prepare for and build resilience to you know, uh, public health shocks, whether they be you know, disease, uh, infectious disease related or, or not. It, there are a number of social, political, and epidemiological dynamics at work that are driving. Uh, what I believe is an increase in the threat of infectious diseases uh, in the United States and elsewhere around the world to which we must build resilience, uh, particularly in urban communities. So you know, this becomes an important feature of, uh, of my work.